Psalm 6. This is actually going to be our last sermon in the Psalms uh, this summer. We're going to pick up uh, after this in our series that will take us through the fall, which is on the book of Ephesians. So our first sermon there will be uh, in Acts 19 uh, in a couple of weeks where we're going to look at the founding of the Ephesian church. And then we're going to jump into Paul's letter to the Ephesians and think about what it means for us as God's people, uh, particularly as the church of Jesus. What does that mean for how we live? Looking forward to this series and uh, that's why we're starting uh, this new Bible study uh, so that we can be thinking together uh, as a church and as individuals uh, of what it means uh, to do that and really wrestling through the biblical text together. Uh, But this morning our passage is Psalm 6. So I'm going to read this for us and then we're going to pray and ask God for his help to understand it. Psalm 6, to the choir master, with stringed instruments according to the Shimoneth, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me. All you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Friends, this is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray and ask for his help to understand it. Father, we thank you. That you are a God who speaks. We thank you that you haven't left us alone to figure out what we should believe or how we should live as your people. But Lord, you've given us your word. And Lord, we pray now that you would give us your spirit. uh, That you would come and speak to us. That you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds. Lord, we pray this morning that grace would hurt and that grace would heal. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In Flannery O'Connor's short story, Revelation, we are introduced to a woman named Mrs. Turpin. And Mrs. Turpin is a decent church-going lady, uh, or so she thinks. Um, She is very confident that she is better than most. Um, Certainly better than all of you. Um, She's a very arrogant and self-righteous woman, and as the story opens, she is walking into a doctor's office with her husband, Claude, who's been kicked by a cow and now has an ulcer on his leg. Of course. So she goes into the doctor's office, and she sits in the waiting room, and she begins contemplating how great she is next to all of the other people in the waiting room. 
She sees a woman whom she describes as white trash, and she talks about her the whole time as the white trashy woman in her mind. She sees another woman who's poor. She sees another young girl who is fat and ugly, uh, as she describes her in the story. She sees poor people and just looks down on them because they're poor. She sees others and thinks they're just not quite as good as her. And so she's sitting in this room, and she begins kind of holding court. She starts talking to these other people in a really condescending way, sort of making passive-aggressive comments about how they could be better if they would just try a little harder. And the whole time, she keeps looking at the fat and ugly girl in the corner who's reading a book. And a minute later, something happens that will forever change the course of Mrs. Turpin's life. The fat and ugly girl throws the book she is reading at Mrs. Turpin. And it hits her right in the head. And Mrs. Turpin falls down, as you can imagine you would fall down in a waiting room if you were struck by a book in the temple. Uh, and this woman begins uh, sort of raging, this girl who's throwing the book. She's, she's angry at Mrs. Turpin and what Mrs. Turpin keeps saying and how awful she's being to everyone in the waiting room. And so people start restraining her and holding her down. And the doctor runs out with a needle that has some kind of sedative in it and injects it into her neck. And Mrs. Turpin stands up and kind of collects herself and walks over and looks at this girl on the ground writhing. And the girl looks back at her and her eyes at the moment are perfectly clear and perfectly focused on Mrs. Turpin. And Mrs. Turpin knows the girl sees her. And not just sees her and sort of like knows she's there, but sees who she is. And Mrs. Turpin gets the sense that this girl is about to say something of tremendous import to her. And so she looks down at the girl and says, what is it you want to say to me? And the girl looks at Mrs. Turpin and says, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. It's quite a visit to the doctor. Mrs. Turpin uh, received an unexpected and a painful rebuke. As we look at Psalm 6 this morning, we find King David in what seems to be a similar situation. David is experiencing pain. David is experiencing hardship, and we see in verse 1, David is experiencing a rebuke from God. He is experiencing the consequences of his sin. He is experiencing discipline from God. And David hates it. It's awful. David is overwhelmed and overcome by the effects and the consequences of his sin. Look at how he describes those things throughout this passage. In verse 2, he says he is languishing and his bones are troubled. In verse 3, he says his soul also is troubled. In verse 5, it feels like he might even be dying. In Sheol, Lord, who will give you praise? He cries out like, Lord, if I die, who's going to worship you? Look at verses 6 and 7. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. David's saying, Lord, I'm crying myself to sleep every night. 
My tears are soaking my bed. He can barely see because of how grief-stricken and heartbroken he is by what his sin is doing in his life. And so in verse 3, David finally just cries out to the Lord, How long? Lord, how long will this continue? Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever experienced the consequences of your sin like this? Have you ever just looked around and felt like you've made a mess of your life and you have no idea how anything will ever be right again? If you felt that way, you are in good company because that's where David is this morning. That's where Mrs. Turpin was in that waiting room in the story. And here's the thing. David realizes in Psalm 6, that he doesn't have the resources within him to get himself out of this mess. There's no proper technique for extricating himself from the disaster that is around him. David is overwhelmed and overcome by the consequences of his sin. As they put it in Alcoholics Anonymous, your own best thinking got you here. That's where David is. His own best thinking got him to where he is. And so what Psalm 6 is doing for David and what it's doing for us is it is demonstrating for us and it is illustrating for us and it is teaching us what a faithful response looks like when we are overwhelmed by the consequences of our sin. It is showing us what a faithful response looks like when we have made a mess of our lives and have no hope of fixing it on our own. And so what David does is what we all must do. He cries out in the midst of that situation, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. You see it in verse 2. He says, Lord, be gracious to me. Lord, heal me. You see it in verse 4. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Friends, it's important for us to note and to underline like three times here. David has no grounds here to argue with God that God owes him something. David is not being unjustly oppressed by people. David has blown it, and he is experiencing the consequences of his own sin. David is getting what was coming to him. His only hope, his only hope in this situation is grace. His only hope is grace. And when we say grace, what we mean is his only hope is God's unearned favor. David has no claim to anything before God. His only hope is that God will give him something that he does not deserve. One-way love. A generous love that God gives to his people simply because he wants to give it, not because they have earned it. You see, Psalm 6 is about the consequences of our sin, but Psalm 6 is really about God's grace 
for sinners. Psalm 6 is about what God is doing with people who are in a mess of their own making. And so I want to think briefly this morning with you about grace in the face of our sin. About grace in the face of the consequences and the effects of our sin in the world and in our own lives. Because while David is experiencing the effects and the consequences of his sin, David is also experiencing God's grace. And that's because, and this is our first point for this morning, grace hurts. Grace hurts. That might be a surprising thing to hear. We might not often think about grace hurting. Uh, It's part of the reason that we were looking at Flannery O'Connor this morning, because Flannery O'Connor brilliantly, more than maybe any other writer, captures the violence and the disruption of grace in our lives, and sometimes grace feels like a book hitting you in the temple. Grace hurts. And here's why grace hurts. Grace hurts because grace requires us to acknowledge the harm we've done. Grace requires us to look our sin full on, to look at ourselves honestly and openly, to see ourselves truly. Grace requires us to acknowledge that we are not just people who mess up, but we are people who mess things up. We hurt others. The sin in our lives and the sin in our hearts affects other people. It affects those that we love. It hurts other people. Grace hurts because grace unmasks us. Grace hurts because grace requires us to confront the fact that we need grace. Friends, grace requires us to acknowledge and to understand that we stand before God empty-handed and needy in a mess of our own making. Grace cuts away all of our illusions of self-sufficiency, of competence, and of righteousness. And this is what David is experiencing in Psalm 6. David is experiencing full on the effects of his sin and he is realizing that his only hope is God's grace. Let me tell you what David is not experiencing in Psalm 6. David is not experiencing God's punishment. Experiencing the consequences of sin is not experiencing God's punishment. In fact, David is not being punished for sins. What the Bible tells us elsewhere, and this is why indeed we looked at Hebrews 12 this morning, is that when we as God's people experience the effects of our sin, when we experience the consequences of our sin, when we experience how our sin hurts other people and makes our own lives difficult and miserable, we are actually experiencing God's discipline. And friends, as we were talking about in the children's sermon, discipline and punishment are not the same thing. And if you think that the hardship you experience 
or the effects of sin that you experience or the consequences of your sin that you experience, if you think those things are punishment, you're going to miss the point. Because if you think they're punishment, you're going to try to learn whatever lesson you feel like you need to learn as quickly as possible, thinking that that will make the pain stop. But it won't. Because friends, in discipline, what God is doing for us and in us is God is shaping us. He is forming us. God is teaching us when he disciplines us not only to hate the consequences of sin, but to hate sin itself. You see, discipline and hardship and the consequences of our sin are not evidence that God is angry or displeased with his people. They are actually evidence that God loves us. Hebrews 12 is beautiful in this regard. It says that when God is disciplining us, when we are experiencing the hard things that are the consequences and the effects of our sin, God is actually treating us like his beloved children. And that discipline is painful, which the Bible is unambiguously clear about. But that discipline produces what Hebrews calls the peaceful fruit of righteousness. In discipline, God is changing us and God is transforming us. And friends, this is where the gospel is so important to understand. This is where the centrality of what Jesus has done for us absolutely affects the way that we experience difficulty in this life. Because God is not punishing us for our sin because he has already punished Jesus for our sin. That is the heart of the gospel. That is the heart of the good news that brings us together this morning. The beloved Son of God suffered sin's punishment so that we who deserve sin's punishment instead can be disciplined as God's beloved children. It's helpful to realize that on the cross, grace hurts God too. And so friends, what that means is as we experience hardship, as we experience difficulty, as we experience the effects and the consequences of our sin, we are not in a position where we are dis- where God is displeased with us. God is not disappointed in us. God is not frustrated or holding his nose as he looks at us. God is loving us. We are beloved children because of what Christ has done on the cross. God is shaping us in the midst of that hardship. And so what do we do when grace hurts? What do we do when we experience this pain and this hardship? What do we do when we see ourselves truly and experience the consequences of our sin? The Bible's really clear about that. Because of what Christ has done, we repent. We repent. Repentance is the heart of the Christian life. You might even say faith and repentance is the entirety of the Christian life. We are always called to turn away from sin and to turn to Christ in faith and to walk in new obedience. 
During the confession of sin this morning, I read from Hosea 6, verse 1, which captures this whole dynamic beautifully. The prophet Hosea says, Come, let us return to the Lord. That's, that's a picture of repentance. Let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us the hardship of our sin, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. The point here is that the difficulty we experience in this life is meant to encourage us to turn away from sin and all of its manifestations in our lives. It's meant to help us hate not only the difficulty we experience, but sin itself and to turn from it towards God in righteousness. My favorite definition of repentance comes from J.I. Packer, and I've given it to you a hundred times, and I'll give it to you another hundred times a year um, for the rest of my time here. He says this, repentance means turning from as much as I know of my sin to give as much as I know of myself to as much as I know of my God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance must be enlarged. Friends, repentance isn't just something we do once in our lives. Repentance isn't just something we do when we are converted out of darkness into light by the person and work of Jesus. Repentance is the daily work of God's people in Christ. We are always called to know ourselves more truly, to see our sin more clearly, and to understand our God more deeply. And as we do any of those things, our practice of repentance will be enlarged. We will find new things to repent of all the time. Growing in grace does not mean you repent less. It means you repent more. Becoming more like Jesus doesn't feel like getting better and better because becoming more like Jesus means you see more clearly over and over and over how much you need grace. This is why Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's what it feels like to live a life of faith and repentance and obedience. Paul is amazed at God's grace for him. John Calvin, the great theologian and pastor, says that God assigns to believers a race of repentance, which they are to run their whole life long. Friends, repentance is the point of grace hurting. We turn away from sin and turn towards Christ again, day after day after day. So that's our first point, grace hurts. And friends, grace hurts, it it unmasks our sin, it unmasks ourselves, it leads us to repentance. But I think what also we see in Psalm 6 is that grace doesn't just hurt, grace heals. Grace hurts, but grace also heals. You see, it's not just that God is teaching us to hate sin as we experience its consequences. We see in Psalm 6 that God is actually healing us. What God is doing is God is at work in us, helping our evil hearts to unlearn sin. He is changing us, and he is transforming us. That's why David prays in verse 2, Be gracious to me, Lord. Heal me. Change me. My bones are troubled. 
And what David sees in Psalm 6, what David sees throughout his life, is that God does that work. God heals, and God changes, and God transforms his people. And that's why Psalm 6 ends not on a low note, but on a high note. In verses 8 through 10, David bursts forth with a confidence that seems utterly disconnected from the grief and the depression and the frustration he has articulated in verses 6 and 7. But in verse 8, David says, God has heard the sound of my weeping. In verse 9, he says that not only has God heard my weeping, he's heard my plea and he accepts my prayer. And that is only because of God's grace. Not because David's prayers are heartfelt. Not because David's prayers are offered from a great and righteous and noble man. In the midst of his sin, the Lord hears his weeping. The Lord hears his plea. The Lord accepts his prayer. And what that means for David and what that means for us is that sin and its effects do not ultimately win. In fact, verse 10 ends and David underlines that fact because he's saying God will rescue me from this mess of my own making. Friends, I think sometimes when we see people experiencing the consequences of their own evil or foolishness or sin, we tend to kind of think, well, they had that coming. We might sarcastically say, like I do as a parent, what did we learn? That's not God's response. God's response in the midst of that is compassion and grace, teaching people to turn away from sin. God transforms us in the person and work of Jesus. So we come back to Mrs. Turpin who's just heard a word from God in the waiting room of a doctor's office. She has heard that she should go back to hell where she came from, you old warthog. Mrs. Turpin goes home, and she's not quite sure what to do with that message. She's not quite sure what to make of it. And so she gets back to her house, and she goes down to care for her own pigs. And she uh, is washing out the concrete pad where the pigs live. And she begins to argue with God. Like, Lord, why is that what you had to say to me? Why is that the thing? Why was that your message for me today? I am a decent, hardworking person. I go to church. I am great. I am nice to people. I do my best with the things you've given me. You could have made me anything, but you made me this, and then you tell me that I am a warthog from hell? And at the climax of this, she's standing there by the pig pen, shaking with fury, and she raises her voice to God and says, Who do you think you are? And here's where the story ends. And if I was a better preacher, I might be able to summarize it in a helpful way, but I can't. So I'm going to read it. You get a paragraph of Flannery O'Connor this morning as we end. Until the sun slipped finally behind the tree line, 
Mrs. Turpin remained there at the pig pen with her gaze bent down to them as if she were absorbing some abysmal life-giving knowledge. At last, she lifted her head. There was only a purple streak in the sky, cutting through a field of crimson and leading like an extension of the highway into the descending dusk. She raised her hands from the side of the pen in a gesture hieratic and profound. A visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw the streak in the sky as a vast swinging bridge, extending upward from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling towards heaven. There were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives, and bands of blacks in white robes, and battalions of freaks and lunatics, shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end, the very rear of the procession, was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those like herself, who had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. She lowered her hands and gripped the rail of the hog pen, her eyes small but fixed unblinkingly on what lay ahead. In a moment, the vision faded, but she remained where she was, immobile. At length, she got down and turned off the faucet and made her slow way on the darkening path to the house. In the woods around her, the invisible cricket choruses had struck up. But what she heard were the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting, Hallelujah. Friends, grace hurt Mrs. Turpin that day. It felt like a book to the head. Grace unmasked her for what she really was. She thought she was a decent, hard-working, God-fearing, church-going woman who was just better than everyone else. And Grace showed her that day what she truly was, a warthog from hell. And as she meditated on this message she had heard from God, what she saw in this vision was all of the people she thought were better than her, that she was better than, all of the people she thought were worse than her, were marching into heaven ahead of her. And she was there in the back of the line, as even all the things she thought made her great were being burned away by the holiness and the grace of God. And at the end of that, she's not resentful. At the end of that, she is transformed. And she is shouting, hallelujah. Friends, grace hurts. But grace heals. Would you pray with me? Father, we come this morning as sinners who only have hope because of your grace. 
Lord, we pray that your grace would do its work in us, that your grace would unmask us, that your grace would show us who we truly are, that it would show us our sin, that it would show us all of the things about us, even and especially the things that are hard to see. Lord, wound us that you might heal us. Lord, show us our sin. Show us who we are. Teach us to repent and heal us. Change us. Transform us. Discipline us because of what Christ has done for us. Lord, conform us more and more to his image. Even now, Lord, as we come to your table, we pray that you would be at work in us, that you would do this work of transforming us, that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose to make us more like Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.